Will you please bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful now to come to this time where as we have been praying to you and singing to you, where we now desire to hear from you by your spirit through your word. So as you have been doing since the very beginning of the church, we ask that this morning again, you would have your word preached and have it preached well so that all of us could grow in our understanding of you and your will. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. One of the reasons I think that we are fortunate to live approximately 1980 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the massive volume of songs that have accumulated after nearly two millenniums of thoughtful Christian poets who have been thinking about God and thinking about His Word and writing lyrics and songs for us to sing. Here we are almost two millenniums later and we have quite a stockpile, don't we, of songs that we can sing. The reason I bring that up is because many scholars believe that Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20, is an early first century hymn that Paul is quoting. He may be quoting or summarizing a hymn that was being circulated and sung in the early church, a hymn that declares, as Pastor Curtis was saying, the glories of Jesus Christ. Here's what has just happened before verses 15 through 20. Paul has just prayed for the Colossians, beginning in chapter 3 through verse 14. And he has reminded them that they, as Christians, have been, if you look back at verse 14, he's reminded them that they have been, quote, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now Paul goes on to say something about this Deliverer, Jesus Christ. So six verses today. Six verses that are packed. Packed. These six verses are packed with heart-strengthening truth. In fact, this may be the most concentrated description of the glories of Jesus Christ in your entire Bible. Sort of exciting passage today. This really may be the most concentrated description of the glories of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. Maybe, right here. And we're going to read them. Let me rattle off to you what this says about Jesus Christ. All the things that it says. And then we'll look more closely. Verse 15a. Now you'll hear me say things like A and B and C and D. And if you look in your Bible, you're not going to see verse 15a. It's just my attempt to try to break up even the verses because there's so much packed even in one verse. So verse 15a, Jesus, He 
is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15b. He is the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16a. By Him all things were created. And it will say created through Him as well. Verse 17a. He is before all things. Verse 17b. In Him all things hold together. Verse 18a, He is the head of the body of the church. 18b, He is the beginning. 18c, He is the firstborn from the dead. 18d, In everything He is preeminent. 19, In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20a, He reconciles all things to Himself. And verse 20b, He makes peace by the blood of His cross. He summarizes an entire class on the greatness of Jesus Christ in six verses. A lot to think about. Many years before Paul writes this, a man named Epaphras who we're going to learn about through this book. A man named Epaphras, probably in the great city of Ephesus, heard the Apostle Paul for the first time declare these glories of Jesus Christ. Epaphras was visiting in Ephesus and he heard Paul declare these very glories of Jesus Christ years before. His heart was moved and he was converted to Christianity. After being converted to Christianity, Epaphras returned home to Colossae and as you might expect, he started sharing this good news that he had learned of Jesus Christ with others. More hearts were moved. More people believed. More people were converted to Christianity. More people were, as Paul said in verse 14, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. That was many years before. That's what has happened in Colossae. That's how we've gotten to this place where there's a church there and there's Christians there. And now, many years later, Epaphras, Pastor Epaphras, presumably, this minister from Colossae, he makes this long journey from Colossae to Rome to visit Paul, who is imprisoned there, He is seeking out, I think, he's seeking out from the one from whom he first heard of these glories of Jesus Christ because his friends back home, these Christians back home are, to quote what we hear from Paul later in this very book, they're being taken captive by philosophy. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, They are being taken captive by teaching that is really empty deceit, Paul calls it. They are caught up in human traditions, Paul says. And they are entertaining Christ-demoting teaching and teachers. So Epaphras has gone back to Paul from whom he first heard of these glories of Jesus Christ and is reporting, listen, back home, 
Christians are starting to entertain and listen to these false teachers. These men whom I believe are false teachers, Paul. Here's what they're saying. What do you think and what can you do about it? And that largely prompts Paul to write this letter with Epaphras at his side to the Colossian church saying, what are you doing? You're getting caught up and dragged into these empty philosophies, this empty deceit, getting caught up in human tradition. And Christ is being demoted. And so what does He do? He answers back with this letter. And He answers back with what we're reading today. These six verses that are anything but Christ demoting. Right? These are Christ promoting. So back home in Colossae, these seeds of doubt are being sown among God's people. Is Jesus really supreme? They're wondering after listening to these false teachers. Is He really sovereign? Is He really sufficient? I mean, He may be, as many false teachers were teaching in the first century, He may be the highest of all created beings. False teachers were affirming that. But He should not become an idol that replaces our worship of and devotion to God the Father, right? That's how this would be packaged in this false teaching. These false teachers would say, hey, listen, we are monotheistic. There is one God. There is no other gods. And we owe our honor, our allegiance to God the Father. And so Jesus can become an idol. You're worshiping Jesus too much. I mean, He's the highest of all supreme created beings for sure, but let's not have Him be an idol that replaces God. So it sounded very convincing because it sounded like they were defending God. And some of God's people were being caught up into this. There is only one God. So Jesus can't be God, right? may have been the argument that was put forth. And so Christ was losing preeminence in the hearts of the Colossians. And Epaphras had the spiritual wisdom and foresight to see that the very foundation of the church in Colossae was being shaken. And so he asks Paul for help. Paul, can you help us out? Are we getting off track? And so Paul writes these words to the Colossians to remind them of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In these six verses, Paul gives the Colossians the twofold basis of Christ's preeminence. In these six verses, he gives the Colossians two reasons why Jesus Christ is the Lord Jesus Christ and is therefore worthy of all their honor and all their allegiance and all their submission and all their obedience. Jesus is preeminent and He ought to be Colossians and He ought to be 
Veritas Church. He ought to be preeminent in your heart. And in these six verses, Paul basically gives a twofold basis for that. Two reasons why Jesus should be preeminent in your life. Number one, He is the Lord of creation. And number two, He is the Lord of redemption. To summarize, why should Christ be preeminent? Why should He be first place? Number one, in my life, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, why? Well, Paul's argument is, well, Jesus is the Lord of creation. And He is the Lord of redemption. Back to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Before Paul reminds the Colossians of what Christ has done, he reminds the Colossians of who Christ is. That's first. Who is this beloved Son to whose kingdom the Colossians have been transferred? He mentioned this beloved Son in verse 14. He is, Paul says, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God the Father is invisible. The invisible God. God the Father is invisible. God is Spirit, we're told in John 4.24, which is why true worshipers worship God in Spirit and in truth. No one has ever seen God the Father, we learn in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. And John also said in chapter 1, verse 18. In fact, Exodus 33, 20 makes it very plain that no one can see God and live. You don't see God. God is spirit. God is invisible. But you also don't see God because you can't see God because He is perfect and He is so full of glory that we could not in a sinful state handle it. I don't know what that means. I really don't. I don't know if we would just vaporize or what. But Exodus 3.33.20 says no one can see God and live. But Jesus was and is, we learn here, the image of of this invisible God. People, according to Genesis 1.27, are created in the image of God. But this is distinct. Jesus is not created. We'll get there. And He is not in the image of God. He is the image of God. And when you see this word image here in the Greek, it means an intentional impression. An intentional impression. An impression that is made. This is not accidental. And it is an exact likeness. So Jesus is the exact likeness of God. He is the exact likeness of the eternal and everlasting Father. Let me read you another passage that says this in the New Testament. Hebrews 1, 1-3. Which has, is, is a parallel text to Colossians 1, 15-20. So, what that means is when you hear me read these first three verses of Hebrews, it's going to sound very similar to what you read in Colossians 1, 15-20. But listen to about Jesus being the image of God. Long ago, 
at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And here's what I want you to hear as it relates to this verse. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So if we want to understand a verse in the Bible, what is the best way to understand a verse in the Bible? Is it to... Let's do a quiz. Is it to ask your friend what they think? Is that the best way to understand what a verse means in the Bible? I won't have you raise your hand. Too bad we don't have like little buttons right in your seats. So you get anonymously. Is it to ask your friend? No. Is it to ask your pastor? No. No, it's not. It's not the best way. What is the best way to understand what a verse in the Bible is saying? Friends, the answer is find more verses in the Bible. One of the most important hermeneutic principles, interpreting the Bible principles, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Remember that. Really important. Don't go for your commentary first. Don't go for your friend first. Don't go to your own philosophizing first. Find more Scriptures. And there's lots of great Bibles out there that will actually show you in the margins other passages that talk about what you're reading about. So we interpret Scripture with Scripture. So what does this mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Well, we learn something from Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So to look into the face of Jesus. Imagine this. If you're a Christian, you'll get to do this someday. To look into the face of Jesus is to see the image of God the Father. Which is why Jesus said in John 14.9, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. And according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, one thing that God is doing right now is blinding the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So if you can imagine, Jesus walked this earth and dwelt among us approximately 33 years. So for 33 years, people could see the image of God. One day, people will see the image of God again upon Christ's return. For now, no one can see even the image of God because Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.16, where is Jesus now? He dwells in unapproachable light. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, Jesus came to me. I saw Jesus. No, you didn't. That was the chili you had for dinner. You didn't see Jesus. Well, how can you say I didn't see Jesus? Because Scripture tells us that Jesus now, the image of God, dwells in unapproachable light. 
So no one sees God. No one now even sees the image of God, including the boy from heaven is for real. I'm sorry to burst that. He claimed to see Jesus riding on a rainbow-colored horse. First of all, that's offensive. A rainbow-colored horse? Terrible. Isn't tough? But no one sees Jesus now. Why? He dwells in unapproachable light. And He will come back. And He actually will come back on a horse. And it is not the color of a rainbow. Not a tie-dyed horse. White. White. White horse. Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. And Paul says, before he gets to what Jesus has done, who He is, not only is Jesus the image of the invisible God, He is the firstborn of all creation. Now that could sound like, and it doesn't mean when it says the firstborn of all creation, that Jesus was the first thing born in God's creation. And so God created, and the very first thing that He created was Jesus. Jesus was the first creature. That was the Arian heresy of the third century where Arius said there was once when He was not. About Jesus. There was once when He was not. And the early church squashed that with Scripture. Said no. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He's eternal. Actually, the New International Version and the New King James Version probably say this more clearly when it says He is the firstborn over all creation. So what Paul has in mind was the rights and privileges of the firstborn Son. This is what he means when he calls Christ the firstborn of all creation. For example, if you look and see what firstborn means in Psalm 89.27, and I will make Him the firstborn. And what does that mean according to Psalm 89.27? I will make Him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. By saying that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, Paul is saying that Jesus is before and over all creation. He is before and over. has to do with His priority in the universe. His sovereignty in the universe. He existed before all created things. Paul will make that even more clear as he goes on. Because He existed before all created things, that means that Christ was not created. He was uncreated. If you're uncreated, you're eternal. Christ is eternal. It means Christ is God. This is the point Paul is making to this in the face of this teaching that was demoting Christ. Remember, what is the problem in Colossae? Christ is being demoted. Some are probably proposing that Christ was even a part of creation. That was popular among Gnostic teachers at this time. Christ was part of creation. But remember what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. Just to give you one verse that makes it very clear that Christ existed before creation. And now, Father, remember when Jesus prayed this? And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
Think about that. Here is Jesus in creation, in the world, praying to God, saying, God, glorify Me. Make Your beauty, Your greatness shine forth through Me and what I'm about to do. Glorify Me. The kind of glory, beauty, Godness that we had before the world existed. Christ is eternal. So who is Jesus Christ, Paul? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Therefore, He is preeminent, Paul is saying. Christ is preeminent. But now Paul goes on. This is who Jesus is, and now this is what Jesus has done. Verse 16. That's who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So here Paul talks about what is Christ's relation to the universe. That's what he's interested in first here. What is Christ's relation to the universe? And he makes pretty clear, He is the Lord of creation. He says a lot here, doesn't he? There's a lot here about Christ and His relation to creation and the universe. Look at the first part of verse 16. For by Him all things were created. Did you know that Christ was the agent of creation? Paul says later, all things were created through Him. God spoke creation into existence. God the Father. And Jesus, if you will, was the one commentator says, the Master Workman. The Master Workman. John 1.3 says, all things were made through Jesus. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And again, we can go back to our parallel verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Or 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So, what has been created through Jesus Christ? All things, Paul says. And even qualifies that by making it clear that Christ is the Creator of the material world and the immaterial world. What you see and even what you don't see. The physical realm, the spiritual realm. All of it, right? For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him. Christ is the agent of creation, but He's not just the agent of creation. Not only is He the agent of creation, He's also the goal of creation. 
All these things were created through Him. And in this very small phrase, the really important. All these things were created through Him. And then verse 16c, and for Him. You see that? Small phrase. Really important. Collapse those verses. Christ is the Creator of all things and all things are created for what purpose? For Jesus. This, this may concisely answer one of the most common questions that people have. Why did God create the world? Well, according to Colossians 1.16, for His Son. Why did God create the universe? Well, Paul says here, for His Son. This means that everything in the created universe has been created for the honor and praise of Jesus Christ. He is preeminent. That's not all Paul says about Christ's relation to the creation. Not only is He the agent of creation, the master workman of creation, not only is He the goal of creation, creation is for Him and for His glory and praise, He's also the sustainer of creation or the upholder of creation. Verse 17, and He is before all things, which is really a restatement of what He's already said in verse 15, and in Him, think about this, what does Paul say? And in Him, all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 again says that Jesus upholds the universe by the Word of His power. So Jesus is before it all. He is the Creator of it all. He is the goal of it all. He is the sustainer of it all. Science is possible because of Jesus Christ. I love science. I know I not presume to be a scientist or to have even compared to some of you a basic understanding of what is to know about this created world, but I do know that science should prompt worship. Through science, you're learning about the order that God has created. I mean, there is no science if there are not rules in the universe and if there is not order in the universe and if there is not cohesion in the universe. But there is and there's a degree of predictability and we can, we can learn about the universe because of this order and because of this cohesion and because of these rules that exist. And it is Jesus Christ who made the rules and designed the rules and orders the universe. Say, where do these rules come from? How is this possible? Where, the more we discover, the more we learn the order that is the universe and the organization and the cohesion. 
friends, that kind of perfect order was not born out of disorder. Friends, talk about illogical. I mean, really. And talk about unreasonable. Christian will not deny the need for science. Christian will not deny the order, organization, cohesion of this universe. But a Christian knows that that proton and that neutron and that electron stay together in that atom because Christ has determined they would stay together. His rules. I don't know what else this means than to mean that. That in Christ, all things hold together. So Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe. That is Paul's first point here. That means He's the Lord of your universe. You are a part of the universe. Here you are. In the universe. Did you know? Maybe you're just hearing. That Jesus Christ is the Lord of this universe you're a part of. This is a crucial claim of Christianity that is worth considering for the one who says, I am not a Christian because we are claiming, believe it or not, we are claiming that Christ is not only Lord over us, but that He is Lord over you. Which is why we want you to deal with Jesus. He's not just Lord over us. We believe in terms of Him being Lord over the universe that He is Lord over you. He upholds you. He sustains you. He has given you life. He gives you breath. And you should, as Romans 1.21 talks about, you should therefore, as we have decided to do, you should honor Him and thank Him. You should honor Him and thank Him. And Romans 1 tells us this sad truth that Many, friends, if you are here and are not a Christian, many have already gone before you who did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And we hope that you will not have foolish hearts. And we hope that you will not mistake your futile thinking wisdom. But that you would surrender even your mind to the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We can assure you, your mind will not be disappointed. Your mind will not be frustrated. And your mind will not have to abandon logic and abandon reason and abandon order because you live in the universe where Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Lord of creation. Not only though, as we move on to verses 18-20, through not only is Jesus Christ preeminent because He is the Lord of creation, He is preeminent because He is the Lord of redemption. He's also the Lord of redemption. Let me read verses 18-20. through And He is the head of the body of the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. You can go back and do a more thorough study of this, verses 16 and 17, and write them down next to verses 18 through 20, and you'll see the same structure, all things, all things, through Him, through Him. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe. He is the Lord of creation, but He is also the Lord of redemption. What is Christ's relation to the church? We learn here. What's another name for the church? The church are the redeemed. The redeemed of the Lord. Christians. What is Christ's relation to the redeemed? He is the head of the redeemed. He is the head of the church. He is the Lord of redemption. Verse 18, the first thing Paul says. He is the head of the body of the church. Christ is the head of the church. The church is the body of Christ. He's the head or the body. Scripture says both and even elsewhere. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And He put all things under His feet. That's God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet. And gave Him as head over all things. He's head over all things, the universe. And He gave Him to the church, which is His body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. 1 Corinthians 12.27 Now you, Christians, Paul is saying, you are the body of Christ and you are individually members of it. So Paul is saying Christ is the head of the church. And He has accomplished reconciliation. The church is a body of people who were not redeemed, but now are redeemed. The church is a body of people who were not reconciled to God, but were at enmity with God, were haters of God, even in being indifferent to God. But they've been now reconciled to God and brought into relationship with God. They are a new society, if you will, the church is. A new humanity, if you will, the church is. A new citizenship, if you will, the church is. With new king. I'm not king anymore. Jesus is king of my life. Jesus is Lord of my life. He is the head of the church. Paul goes on. He is the beginning. The beginning of what? The church, I think. What Paul is saying. Jesus is the beginning of the church. How? How is He the beginning of the church? He is the firstborn from among the dead. Sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? What does that mean? It almost sounds like an oxymoron. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Revelation 1.5 repeats this verbatim. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the dead. And in that way, He is the beginning of the church. He's the beginning of this new society. He's the first man in this new humanity that is the church. Because He is the firstborn of the dead. So what does that mean other than Jesus was the first to pass through death and come out on the other side never to taste death again. 
You say, no, wait, I've read my Old Testament. I've read about Lazarus. No, there were people who were dead and they were brought back to life. Well, properly speaking, they were not resurrected because they died again. What a bummer, by the way. Not sure it's really that great to be Lazarus. Didn't die once, died twice. Properly speaking, that's revivication. They were revived. Brought back dead, brought back to life, only to die again. Mm. Kind of cool, not that cool. Well, Christ was very distinct in that He passed through death, conquered death. Lazarus didn't conquer death, he died again. Passed through death, conquered death, has the keys to it, conquered it, Never to die again. And what does 1 Corinthians 15.20 tell us? That that was the first fruits of all those who would believe. So like first fruits, new fruit on the tree. What is that new fruit on the tree telling you? It's telling you about the fruit that's to come. There's going to be more fruit like this. There's an apple. doesn't mean there's going to be, oh, there's going to be an avocado in a couple weeks. There's going to be more apples on the tree. See a red tomato on the tomato plant? That means it's the first fruits. You can expect there to be more red tomatoes. So here's Jesus, the firstborn of the dead, the first man of this new humanity, which is the church of which He is the head. Well, what happened to Jesus? He conquered death. What happens to Christians? You will conquer death. When you die, you will be raised again, never to die again. New life in Christ. Jesus was the first one. He was the firstborn from the dead. Verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, all God the Father's qualities and activities, His Word, His wisdom, His glory are perfectly displayed in Christ. One commentator says, Jesus is the sum total of all the divine attributes and powers. And then verse 20, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Let me read verse 20 again. It's important. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. I'm assuming we have two categories of people here today. Those of you who are Christians and those of you who are not Christians. Only Jesus can tell the difference. We can get a pretty good idea. If someone says they're not a Christian, we take your word for it. Believe you. going to question you. Of course, and we want you, who maybe is not a Christian, and we're so glad you're here, 
but we do want you to understand that saying I am a Christian does not make you a Christian. So please don't assume that everyone who has claimed to be a Christian in your life on the television really was. But there are finally, and there will be, two categories of people, Christian and non-Christian. Those who have believed the Gospel and repented of their sin and turned to Christ for rescuing, and those who have not. the end of days, that's all there will be. So let me speak first to the Christian, and then to the not-Christian. Christian, Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe, Paul is saying. He is the Lord of the universe. And He is the Lord of redemption. So the two things Paul is saying, He is the Lord of your redemption. Your redeeming. Your saving. Your delivering. Your rescuing. Jesus is the one who's rescued you. The Lord of your redemption. This is why we call Him the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a very appropriate title for Jesus. I'd encourage you to have that come out of your mouth more, Christian. When you speak of Jesus, speak of Him as the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's becoming lost. Sounds strange. Too long to say. We prefer the more informal Jesus. But He is the Lord Jesus Christ because He's the Lord of the universe and He is the Lord of your redemption. That's what we mean when we call Him the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this, Paul has a word for the Colossians and he has a word for us. The Lord Jesus Christ is the preeminent One. That's what he's saying. The Lord Jesus Christ, to quote Paul, is the preeminent One. Preeminent. First place, it means. Surpassing all others. Highest rank. Highest place of honor. Nothing beside Jesus. Nothing before Jesus. Nothing added to Jesus. Not your works. Not your good deeds. Not your job. Not your wife, not your husband, not your children, not your health, not your home, not your friends, not your accomplishments, not your talents, not your money. Nothing before Jesus because Jesus is the preeminent One. Christian is Jesus Christ as the preeminent One. Is He though actually preeminent in your hearts? That's for us to ask, isn't it? Is He personally in me and in my life and in my choices and in my decisions and in my priorities, is He who He actually is? Do I acknowledge Him in my life personally as who He actually is? It's not just that Jesus is in first place if you put Him in first place. That's not what it's saying. No, He is in first place. But are you acknowledging that in your life? 
Does He have the highest rank in your heart? Or is something else? One of those things I named off. Does something else have preeminence? Or is it Christ? Has He lost preeminence in your heart? Maybe He had it at one point. You remember that? And it was different than it is now? Has He lost preeminence? Has He been bumped? Has something taken His place? Maybe you should read Colossians 1, 15-20 about a hundred times this week. That would be my application for you. One hundred times. And maybe you should read this passage, these six verses, over and over and over again. Maybe you should think about these verses over and over and over again. Maybe you should memorize them. If your heart is prone to forget, if your heart is prone to grow weary, if your heart is, 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 is prone to go weak, maybe this would be a great passage for you to memorize. So you can be reminded of God's reasons through Paul of why He ought to be preeminent in your heart. If I could speak for just a couple minutes to those of you who are not Christians. What if I'm not a Christian? Well, you do have to decide what you will do with the Lord Jesus Christ. And to choose to do nothing with the Lord Jesus Christ is your right to do nothing with the Lord Jesus Christ. But He will not in return do nothing to you. He will do something. And He will hold you accountable. Now in one sense, if you are not a Christian, you are, to use a worldly term, one of the luckiest people in the universe today. Because you're hearing the good news. You're hearing the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In that sense, you are among the most blessed non-Christians right now on the planet. You're hearing good news. Will you accept Jesus or reject Him? He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of your universe. And do not be deceived to think that the One who has given you life and the One who has given you breath and the One who upholds you every day and sustains you every day is going to wink at your sin or sweep your indifference under the carpet. He is too good for that. And He is too just to do that. And He is too right to overlook your sin and my sin. You are accountable to Him. Today, if you are not a Christian, you stand before Jesus as your judge and you stand before Him guilty. But as Paul says here, there is good news because He is also the Lord of redemption. And He redeems and rescues people every day in this universe. And you may be up. 
This could be the day of your redemption that you will sing about for the rest of eternity. Paul makes clear he is the Lord of redemption. Don't make a mistake, friends, if all of you would look back at verse 20 of thinking that Jesus is just a universalist that saves everybody. Some have misinterpreted verse 20 when it says, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. This is good, Paul. Are you saying that Jesus, just carte blanche, reconciles to Himself all things on heaven, in heaven, or on the earth? All things, including those who are not Christians. But don't make the mistake. Because Paul very clearly says, Reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. But did you know there's another category called, in Scripture, those under the earth? Not in heaven, not on the earth, but those under the earth. Under the earth is a term used to describe those whose faith is not in Jesus Christ. Well, what happens with those who never place their faith in Jesus Christ? Those who are under the earth, we learn in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Description of the end of days. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. There's our two, verse 20, Colossians 1 categories of people. Who's going to bow before Jesus? Who's going to acknowledge Jesus as King? Those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, things under the earth, people under the earth are not reconciled to God, but they will bow before Him and acknowledge Him as King. Friends, listen. I mean this with all my heart. Each and every one of you Christian, each and every one of you not Christian, there will come a day and you will bow your knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will confess that He is everything He has said that He is. Here's the difference. Some of you will do this gladly. And some of you will be pacified before that great king. And your knee will be bent before the Lord of the universe. F.F. Bruce said, The peace which Christ has brought may be freely accepted or compulsorily imposed.
Every knee will bow before the king. The question is, will you go before the king as a friend or as an enemy? If you are not a Christian today, believe it or not, you may think that you are right with God and okay with God, but God is not right with you and He is not okay with you. And we would like you to come before Jesus as His friend and not His enemy. But that means you need to believe this good news we're speaking of. And you need to stop rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to look into the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to ultimately turn from your own gods and your own ways. At the peak, I'm sure, is you as it was me. And you need to bow your knee now before the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in a universe that is filled with so much bad news, that there is good news. God, we thank you that there is no such thing as fatalism. We thank you that you are a good God, and even in the evils of this world, you have great purposes. God, thank you for those of us who have been redeemed. Thank you, God. We know it has been. Nothing of our own doing. We know that you have been good and gracious and you have awakened us. And Lord, we ask that you would awaken more. We know that you're not going to reveal yourself to everyone. God, we, we know that. We know that you're not only a displayer of your mercy, but you are also a displayer of your justice. But we ask, Lord, that you would add to your number today. We ask that you would save people today you would open blind eyes and open deaf ears and i pray that hard hearts and hard minds and hard wills would be broken and that they would be conquered by your spirit and your word and we pray this and we ask this in the name of jesus christ amen